Now we're going to talk about the resurrection from the dead, one of the most encouraging and inspiring ideas or truths that we can have in Scripture is the resurrection. The fact that uh, Jesus is coming back and he's going to resurrect us from the dead if we were to die or change us to, to change us into our immortal bodies and to go to be with the Lord forever. That's an incredible, um, wonderful, beautiful truth. And we want to look at that truth. Uh, but before we talk about the resurrection today, I want to just cap off on um, again on uh, what uh, Dave so beautifully shared with us on Sunday about the devil. And I want to talk to you just about give those passages of scripture that he gave because I think one of the most uh, uh, troublesome ideas that I hear um, coming to me when I'm talking to people, if God created everything, surely he created evil as well because how, if God created everything... And, and with that one statement, they dismiss God they dismiss the goodness of God because they just say God must have created evil. So God is then responsible for all the evil that takes place in the world today. So I want to stress this to you. I want to just read this passage of Scripture to you and, and give it to you again and just let you know that in this passage of Scripture in Ezekiel, it quite clearly tells us that God is not the author of evil. He is not the author of that which is sinful and wicked. That, that comes through... Uh, Lucifer, the fallen one. And so I'm just going to read you from uh, verse 12 in uh, Ezekiel 28. He says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the Tyre of, uh, king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. And then he goes on and talks about you were sealed in the garden. Now, when, when a prophecy is given like this, um, oftentimes um, God addresses the man but points to the spiritual being behind the man. And this is the case in this prophecy. He, he looks at the king of Tyre, but he talks to the spirit that is in control of the king of Tyre, the evil that is behind the king of Tyre, and he, he uh, speaks to that. So we get to see uh, what happened in eternity past at the same time as he's prophesying to the king of Tyre. He says, you were sealed... You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfection in beauty. He says, you were in, the, in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, the topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. So here we have the the archangel uh, Lucifer, who was the angel that was responsible for all the worship in heaven, and he was adorned with incredibly um, beautiful stones and um, um, the instruments that he played with, the timbrels and the organs that were on his chest were, were there. He was the one that where all the music comes from. It makes you ask the question, why is music such an emotive thing? Why does it do something to us? It's because oftentimes the source of the music comes from the one who has created the music, and that was uh, Lucifer. So sometimes the demonic music out there can be really deceptive and, and take you away from what God is wanting you to do. This is his perfection. He was, he was made with these beautiful things all covered him. You are the anointed cherub. So God actually anointed him. He was special, who covers you. Um, uh, I established you, and you were... On the holy mountain of God, you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till, he says, iniquity was found in you. Till iniquity was found in you. 
He says there in verse 16, by, your abundance, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. Now, when this creature was created, this angel was created, he was so beautiful, he was the most beautiful thing that he'd ever, had ever been made by God. Now, God makes some pretty beautiful things. If you want to go out and have a look around the world today, you can see some incredibly beautiful things when you look around. You stop and you look at a butterfly that's just coming out of a crystal. That's incredibly beautiful. You can stop and look at birds of paradise and the way that they perform and the, and, and the colors that are involved in flowers. There's incredibly beautiful things happening out there. But this angel, this angel that God created was immensely more beautiful than anything you'd ever imagined. And when he looked at himself and saw himself, his heart was filled with pride. So much so that he thought... Because he was so good looking, there mustn't be anything better than him. He was the top. He desired to be the top. Think about that time when you stand and look in the mirror and you're thinking, looking pretty good about yourself. Wonder about the attitude that just being seeded into you with self love. Because self love, self esteem, if you're thinking you're looking good, you know? You're getting proud about the way you look. Where that really started. The Bible tells us it started right back in the garden, right back in the life of this angel. He was disgusting in terms of his, the things, the conclusions that he made about himself. Isaiah tells us exactly what happened. And he tells us, gives us another insight onto this. And, and Isaiah says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? He names the angel here, Lucifer, son of the morning. How are you cut down to the ground? which did weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. So that's the words that came into his life and he lifted himself up. So that was the origin of evil. You know where evil began? Didn't begin with God. God created something that was perfect. In that perfection, that angel looked at himself and said, you know what? I'm better than God. Well, how could he do that? Well, he, he could do that because he was created with a free will, just like you have been created with a free will. He could choose. He could choose either to obey God or he could choose to disobey God. He had a free will. I mean, why did God create him with a free will? Why didn't he just make him so that he just chose God every time, chose God every time? I'll tell you why he did it. Because what sort of love would you have if you choose God because you've been programmed to choose God? I mean, what sort of love would it be if I programmed my wife to say, I love you, husband, I love you, I love you, come here, I love you, I love you. And then then 10 years later, I love you, my husband, I love you. You would say, that's not real love, you just programmed it to say love. Well, how does God create real choice? The way he creates real choice is to give you an opportunity to choose against him. And that's what he did with the angels. He gave them an opportunity to choose against them. He created perfection, but he gave them choice. 
You choose to love me. And you know what they did? He chose to love himself. It's interesting that today it's all about loving yourself, isn't it? It's interesting that that doctrine is what we hear today, self-esteem. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that's the doctrine of demons about being self. When, when God says, love God with all your heart, you've got to believe in yourself. It's interesting where that doctrine comes from. Think about that a little bit. When you're thinking about having some more love for yourself, Think about where it's actually coming from and what it actually did back then. It may not be the best choice. It might be better to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Amen? So Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the deceptions of the devil. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness, darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, he says, he talks about prayer, he goes on and talking about prayer. Listen, we are in a world that's full of demons. Turn to the neighbor beside you and say, You've been feeling the demons lately? Uh, you might giggle a little bit. You might giggle a bit and you might think it's funny. But you know, you know it, the devil is around and he's active. And the Bible tells us in, the, in Revelation that he is angry because he knows his days are short and he's come to earth and he's thrashing around. So if you're going in a hard time and you're starting to get bad attitudes and bad feelings and bad thoughts and you don't know where they're coming from, I want to tell you something. You're wrestling against the devil. So don't just sit there and get all scared and fearful of it. The devil didn't make you do the things that you do wrong. You chose to do those wrong things. You take responsibility for it and turn to the devil and you tell the devil to get lost. The Bible says if you resist the devil, he will flee from you, which tells me that he is more scared of you than he is, that you are scared of him. The trouble is you get deceived by thinking he's stronger than you is and he can somehow do some pain to you and some harm to you. And you get it so uh, in your mind that you, you, you think about the devil. You, you shake with fear. I hope you never come in contact with him. I want to tell you, he is shaking if you stand into the room and you stand and believe in Jesus' name and speak in Jesus' name. He will get out of the room before you even leave the room. He, he, he is fearful. Of you, Louise was telling me about a situation that she went through last week after I was talking about this. And she could see a demon that was sort of stalking her when she was walking. And look, this is true. I, I've seen demonic forces and principalities in, 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 in a room. When I was young, I, I was out there praying one morning. And I, you might have heard this story and I'll tell it again. Praying there at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I thought I saw in the corner of my eyes, this here, I can see my hand waving there, I can't see it clearly. But I thought I saw my wife get up out of bed and go to my children's room, the girls' room. It was Nathan and, sorry, Nathan and Renee, that you were, weren't born yet, Jade. And then I heard my children cry and cry, the man, the man, the man. I got up, I looked into the bedroom, and my wife was still in bed. But I had seen something here move and move from the bedroom into her room, into the kids' room. I went into the kids' room and Renee and Nathan pointing into the corner of the room saying, man, man. I looked in the corner, nothing there. But they could see it and it was putting fear in them. Oh. Shall I run away and get scared? 
Should I call the man for oil and sprinkle oil over my house? What should I do? Tell it to go in Jesus' name. Stand up and say, in the name of Jesus, get out of this house and don't come back. And guess what happened? Kids went to sleep and it never came back again. Why? It's the same thing happened to Louise last week. Something was following her and she spoke to it in the name of Jesus and it left. She came home and she found it in her, in her house. Ran in her house. You say, how is this? Because the devil is wanting to destroy you. The thief comes not to, to give you uh, life. He gives to steal and to steal and to destroy you. That's what he's come to do. He's come to destroy you. And you spoke to it. What happened? It left, went away. And you haven't seen it since. Thank you, Jesus. I want, to, I want to stress that to you because you think you live in a natural world. You think you live in a material world. You think that you live in a world that has no spooks or demons in it. I've got news for you, friends. The devil is about and he's looking to kill you. He's looking to destroy you. He's looking to steal from you. He's looking to deceive you. He's looking to do a whole lot of things. And you'll come sometimes and you'll feel a whole lot of emotions. The fiery darts of the enemy coming inside your heart and stirring you up and making you all unrestful. I want you just stand up and if you can feel it in here, you just tell it to get out there and you put your shield of faith there and say, in the name of Jesus, I'm standing against you. I resist you in Jesus' name. Seriously. You get some fight in your faith. Turn to your neighbour and say, fight the good fight of faith. Don't you sit there and take it from him. Seriously, don't you sit there and take it from him. He's a deceiver. He's a deceiver and you have authority in Jesus' name. Jesus says, all authority is given to me in the name of Jesus. You command it to leave. That's all I want to say about that. We're going to talk about the resurrection now. To start this discussion on the resurrection, I want to talk to you about a story that Jesus gave about a wise man, sorry, a rich man and a poor man. Can you see it there? Shall I move it forward? Okay, I hope you can see it. And the story goes something like this. There was a man called Lazarus, and we know, we know it's a, a story that Jesus was telling, and it's not a parable. The difference between a parable, parable is a made-up story. It's just like a... And then this is an account, so it's something that actually happened. We know it's an account because Jesus actually called Lazarus Lazarus. He didn't say a certain man, which is what he usually says... In, in, in a parable, he, he doesn't give anybody names in parables. This is the only account where he gives people names. So he's giving somebody a name, which means that was a certain man called Lazarus. And this certain man called Lazarus was very poor, and there was a rich man, and, and he lived in this beautiful, sumptuous building, beautiful food every day. And the two of them lived about the same time. Lazarus outside the gates with sores and boils all over him, and the dogs would come and lick his wounds. And the rich man would go past Lazarus, because he'd have to walk into his gate, see him, and sit down at a beautiful table, rich with food and everything that he needed. He was in luxury in his life. And Jesus tells us the story that in the course of time, Lazarus dies, and he goes to Abraham's bosom. Well, we'll call this Abraham's bosom on this side here. It's the grave, he dies, he goes to the grave and the grave was called Hades and this is Abraham's bosom here. 
Then it says, the rich man died and he was buried. And we know that he was buried and his soul and spirit went to this side here. The story Jesus tells us says that when he was there in this place, the rich man could see Lazarus over here in Abraham's bosom. The rich man wasn't in a very comfortable place. The Bible tells us that he was tormented in the flame. So he was being tormented in this place where he was kept. He could see Lazarus over the other side and he says, Please, Father Abraham, can you send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and to put it on my tongue because I am in such torment in this place. And uh, Abraham said to him, Look, that's not possible. There's a gulf between us. A gap between us. You, nobody can go from here to there and nobody can go from here to here. But you can see, but you can't get across it. He says, okay, if I can't go, he says, look, I'm mindful of my brothers and I don't want any of my brothers to come in. This is the first time this man thought about anybody else other than himself, okay? He lived his whole life living for himself. He know, we know he didn't think about anybody else because he didn't think about Lazarus who was a beggar that was at his gate. He didn't even stop to even care for him. So now he's thinking about his brothers and he's saying, I don't want my brothers coming to this place. This is a... You say, I wonder if somebody died and went on the other side and they went to this place. Would they come back and tell us what it's like? Oh, they'll, come, they'll come back and tell you what it's like, all right. They'll tell you, don't come here. Don't come here. This is a horrible place of torment. So there was this place. It was called Hades. And on this side... Unbelievers went, and on this side, believers went. This is before Jesus died. And they could see across the gap at each other. There was light in there. Lazarus was there being comforted, and the rich man was being tormented, and he said, well, why don't you send Lazarus back from the dead? Because I know that my brothers, if they see Lazarus coming up from the dead, they would listen and they would believe and they wouldn't come to this horrible place of torment. And Abraham said to him, you know what? Even if somebody rises from the dead, they still won't believe. They still won't believe. He has Moses, he has the Bible, he has everything there. If they don't believe that, then... That's just the way it is. And that was the end of the picture. Now we're told the rich man, uh, that the, the, when Jesus was on the cross, there was two thieves beside him, remember? One scoffed at him and ridiculed him and the other said, remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, this place. And for three days, Jesus wasn't here collecting all the saints, all the believers that died before Jesus came, looking forward to Jesus. Remember, they looked for the Messiah, they looked for the one that was going to come to save them from their sins, and they died believing, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, not receiving the promise, not receiving the gift, but they died in faith believing. So all the Old Testament saints are here, 
They're living here. Abraham and all the other guys are living in this place. And all the unbelievers who didn't believe in God, who live for themselves, are living over this side. In this place to torment. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And they went to Abraham's bush and this guy went to this place. Place of torment. We're told after three days, Jesus was resurrected. And in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, he who descended, descended to the very depths of the earth and he took captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And so at that point of his resurrection, and I'm looking for the thing, at that point of his resurrection, he took this whole body of people because we're told in Matthew that, the sa- that some of the dead saints that had died beforehand were seen walking around at the resurrection after Jesus was raised from there. They were walking around and they saw them because they had been resurrected as well. And he took them captivity and now the Bible tells us absent from the body is to be present with the Lord because he's taking them to heaven. This is heaven. And all the saints are with him in heaven. How are they with him in heaven? Well, they're there spiritually in their spiritual bodies because their physical bodies is turned to dust. Dust to dust and ashes there. From dust you came to dust you will go. So the resurrection fixes up the dust problem. Your spirit goes to be with God if you're a believer and your spirit goes to this place of torment if you're an unbeliever. That still remains. That's still there. I venture to say that the lights were turned out at that point of time. The light was in this part and they could see the light but I figure it's out of darkness now because Jesus talked about being cast into a place of outer darkness. And uh, that's what I think's happened here. This is still existing. It's still called Hades. It's still the grave, but they live there waiting for the resurrection. And they will be resurrected as well. So absent from the body is present with the Lord. So we know that everybody who dies now is immediately present with it. No, they're not roaming around the earth in their spiritual bodies, hanging in behind something, knocking, trying to communicate to you. If somebody says to you, I can feel the presence of spirit of somebody here in the room that has died before, and I want to tell you something that's a deception. They are with the Lord. They are not here with us and they are not roaming around the earth trying to communicate to you. Every movie that you see that says you can communicate with the dead and somehow the dead are here and, and they'll talk to me and they want you to know that they're in a nice place. It's, all, it's a deception. It's a deception marked by Satan to deceive you to think that there is no judgment coming but the Bible says you will die and then the judgment will come. That's what the Bible says. So every other lie that is being told you and told about spirits walking around, the spirits that are walking around are not human spirits that aren't in heaven yet. They are demonic spirits desiring to deceive you so that you don't believe in heaven and hell. So, Second Corinthians chapter 5 says that we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So Ephesians tells us that when Jesus took them captive from this place and took them up to heaven, now all who die go immediately to be present with the Lord. They don't go to this place. Abraham's bosom is with the Lord in heaven. This place is shut down on this side. There's only this place left. You got that? That's what I think the Bible is teaching us in this area. In John chapter 5, verses 28 to 29, we get an idea about the resurrection. Jesus said these words, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which 
All who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So what we're going to see here is that there is two resurrections and there's a resurrection from the dust. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. In Job chapter 19, verse 25, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and, he, and that he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that is in my flesh I will see God. So he's saying, I know, and this is Job, one of the oldest guys in the Bible. This is even before the law was given, even before Moses. This is in that period of time between Adam and Moses. Job lived. Job lived. And this is the writing, the oldest book in the Bible. And he says, I know my Redeemer lives and that in my, my flesh is going to die and it will turn back to dust. But I know that I will be in the flesh and I will see my Redeemer. He's looking, he see, he, God showed him the resurrection that would take place. He would get a new body. And, he, and that's what he's talking about. He says, the dust has gone to the dust, but God was going to do a, a miracle. He was going to bring his body back from the dust. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, Blessed, are the holy, blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay, let's see if I can explain this to you. There's uh, two resurrections. The first resurrection... It's for believers. It's you and me. You can't see the green? Let me see if I can fix that for you. Is this colour better? And that's for believers. And it says for believers, you won't see the second death. There are two deaths. One is when Eugene's physical body dies, so it goes rotten, and if he doesn't get it burned and cremated, the worms will eat it. It will turn to dust. That's the first death. The second death has to be the time when he will be resurrected, he's get a new body, a living forever body. You like that idea? You better hope you love Jesus. Because when that new resurrected body is taken up and stands there, you can't kill it. So the second death has to do with being thrown into the lake of fire, the Bible teaches us, where this immortal body will suffer forever. Because you don't choose to follow God. This is a horrible, horrible idea. Don't like that idea? It's not my idea. I'm just telling you what the Bible is telling you, okay? This is God's idea. In fact, that's why Jesus got up off his seat and came to earth because he saw it and, and he spoke more about hell than anybody else because he knew of what was coming. Thanks. Why do we need a hell? I mean, wouldn't it, why don't we, like Jehovah's Witnesses, take hell and dismiss it all completely and say there is no hell? Let's say we can't conceive of a loving God thinking of such a horrible thing as sending somebody to, to suffer for eternity in a hell that will burn forever and ever and ever. Let's take away the passages of Scripture that tell us that that's the case in the Bible and let's just present to you an idea and a picture of a God who loves you so much that the worst that could happen to you is you go, 
pop into non-existence. Annihilation. Zip, you're gone. That's the worst that could happen to you. That's what they teach. Jehovah's Witnesses say, the worst that could happen is you could pop into non-existence. The second worst thing is you'll, you'll be on earth here, living in a paradise on earth, and only 144,000 get to go to heaven. And they've already been selected. So you can't be one of them. That's Jehovah's Witness doctrine. It's also the doctrine of other denominations, other cults as well. Listen, here's the reason why there's a hell. It's not because God is not loving. It's because God is holy that there is a hell. You, you need to understand this very well because if you take away from the holiness of God, you can dismiss hell. But if you say that God is extremely holy, then there must be a hell because there must be punishment for that which is unholy. If a policeman were to do something that's not right or the courts were to do something that was not right, you would say they were a corrupt court or a corrupt policeman because they're not upholding truth or rightness. If God is to dismiss sin and to ignore sin and not to punish sin, then he has corrupted his holiness. He is no longer holy. For him to maintain eternal holiness in complete perfection, there must be a hell and there must be continuous punishment for those who are in sin because the wrath of God is visited upon that which is wicked. It must be because holiness demands it. So holiness and love are sort of like left and right hands of God. You know, he loves you. He wants to save you. But because of his holy. He will kill you forever. So God has got a bit of a problem here, you know. On the one hand, he wants to look after you and he wants to save you and he wants to forgive you. And on the other hand, he will punish you and he punish you for eternity unless you turn to him. He must do that. So he's holy and he's loving. In his love, he says, I will send my son. And my son will take upon himself all of your wrongdoing. He will clothe himself with the things that you've done wrong. And then in my wisdom and in my justice, I will slam him to death for your sins. He had committed no sin, but he came, became sin for you, that the judgment of God would be exercised on him, that he would die in your place and in your stead, therefore satisfying the holy, righteous requirement of God to punish that which is evil. And also satisfying the love of God to save the evildoer. Because in his love, Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And made a way of access to a holy God that you could walk with a holy God and have fellowship with a holy God because of his immense, infinite love for you. There it is, in balance. The holiness of God requires an eternal judgment. The love of God frees you from that eternal judgment. I don't need Jesus in my life. Then you face God on your own terms. You face God without the covering of Jesus' righteousness. You face God telling God you can justify yourself and justify your sin to an almighty, holy, infinitely holy God. 
you'll find yourself in a problem. So this is the second death. The second death is the place that you're thrown once you've been resurrected with a new body. And it says the first resurrection, first resurrection, they are freed. They don't go. They're safe from the second death. And they reign with Jesus for a thousand years. That's the millennial reign of Christ, and I'll talk to you about that later. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 says, And why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there are two judgment seats. There are two resurrections. Everybody say two resurrections. Two judgment seats. Yeah. One resurrection takes us to... The judgment seat of Jesus, of Christ. And one resurrection takes us to the judgment seat of the great white throne. If you're going to choose, which one do you want to go to? You want to go to the great white throne? Sorry, buddy, I don't want to go there. Let me tell you why I don't want to go to that one. I want to go to this one. Jesus is my Lord, then I stand before my Lord with regard to my life and he will examine my life the bible tells us quite clearly in second corinthians that we all appear before the judgment seat of christ each one that we may receive things done in the body according to what he's done whether good or bad so we're going to stand before jesus and we're going to give an account for our lives they say, oh, i don't want to do too much for jesus you know I, I i just want to give a little bit to jesus and a little bit of this and i want to really go out full out for jesus because i got my life i want to live you know okay you might be a nice little christian person and you just start giving it all to jesus but one day if you're fortunate enough to get to this place if he doesn't say depart from me i never knew you if you actually get before the the seat of Christ, the beamer seat of Christ, you're going to find that you're going to have to give an account for the things that you've done. And it says there, at this place here, that your, your works are going to be tested like they are tested with fire. Some wood, hay, stubble, some gold or precious stones. You see now, for the day will come and declare it because it will be revealed by fire, the, the text says, and the fire will test each man's work what sort it is. If any man's work has been built but it endures, it will, it will receive a reward. If any man, reward. If any man's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet through the fire. Now, that is not purgatory. You don't get saved through purgatory. There is no purgatory where you have to finish the work that, of redemption. You know, purgatory is the idea that you can't ever get perfect before God here in this day, that you can ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin, but your stain is so black and so bad, your sin is so evil, you have to go to hell and get it burned out of you for another hundred, couple of hundred million years. Then you can go up there. And they take this passage of Scripture to try and prove that that idea is in the heart of God. That idea is not in the heart of God. Jesus said when he was on the cross and he died, he said, It is finished. And we know that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's all unrighteousness. There's no stain left. It's all clean. It's all pure. We've put on the clothes of righteousness. There's nothing left behind. Jesus did it all for us at the cross. We do not have to go to purgatory to finish it off. There is no purgatory. This place is not purgatory. There's no coming out of this place. There is no purgatory. That's the Catholic, Roman Catholic doctrine. It's not found in the Bible. So we're going to get our te works tested. So I might say, well, I've done all this wonderful work for you, God. You must be proud of me. 
I've done these things and I did it so good and I, you know, you, I built it there, you know. And Jesus is going, look, yeah, Mark, you know, I've got a bit of a problem with some of the stuff. Your motive is not real good. I wanted to give you some reward, but, you know, most of your life, the motive that you had was you. You wanted to do it so that you could be seen. And so that got burned up in the fire because the fire tested it. And you know what? You can come in, but it's not through the front door like you want. It's sort of like down the side in the servant's entrance. (laughs) Why? Because we get a reward. He looks at our heart and he tests our heart. He looks and he knows why we do what we do. He knows why you give what you give. He knows what the reason is for it, whether it's important for you to be seen by men and, and receive a reward from men or whether it's important for you to do this for God or whether you're just doing it for Jesus. Some of the days I say, I'm just doing this for you, Jesus. There's actually no one actually watching. It's just you I'm doing it for. I'm just doing this for you, Jesus, because I love you, Jesus. No one will ever see it. No one will ever know it. And I don't even have to tell you about it. I'm just doing it for you, Jesus, because I love you, Jesus. And that may be enough. That may be a piece of diamond right there a little bit of gold and i'll receive a reward from, i'll even take that reward and throw it back to jesus because he deserves it all doesn't he he receives all of our praise and our worship so this is the beamer seat of christ and all those who go to the beamer seat of christ go through that place and find themselves in eternal glory in heaven amen all right but there is another resurrection This is what a resurrection is going to look like if you should be around next Friday when it takes place. Wouldn't that be lovely, hey? Oh, wouldn't that be the best thing? Just imagine on the day that it takes place. This is what it'll be like. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Now, sleep is used figuratively in the Bible to describe death. Why do we use sleep as, as a figure for death? It's because it's not permanent. The big thing about death today, and people get so upset about death, is because they fear death because it's so final. You know, once I'm dead, I'm cactus, it's gone, you know, it's over. You know? Ah, 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 it's just the blink. Death is just the blink. You wake up on the other side. The scary thing is, where do you wake up on the other side? Put your hand in front of your face. Look at your hand. Do you see that? Some of you might not be able to see it real good. What's actually looking at it? Tell me, is it your eyeball? Is it your eyeball or is it something inside of your head that you can't find with a gun, can't find with a knife? What is it? It's your spirit, isn't it? It's the you, the immaterial you looking at your eye, looking at your hand. The immaterial you will live on. It will not die. It will not die. Your body will drop to the ground and it will be like a piece of meat, a bit of carcass. But the spirit, which is you, will have gone. And you'll have gone somewhere. (laughs) Sleep is describing death because for the believer, your body goes to sleep in the dust. And at the resurrection, Jesus raises the body up again. Your spirit is immediately with the Lord. Your body goes to sleep in the dust. It sits in the dust and waits for the resurrection. This is what takes place on that day. Next Friday, maybe. You say, oh, well, never. Oh, Mark, you can't say that. The Bible says, in the hour that you think not, 
then shall the coming of the Lord be. If you don't think it's going to happen on Friday, it just might. Mm. Are you ready? Oh, I want that so bad. Oh, mate, this is what's going to happen. You know, it says, Behold, I tell you, mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. There's a change. Everybody say, change is good. It's good for when I'm alive and it's good for when I'm dead as well. Change is real good. Some people don't like change. In fact, I talk to some people and they say the worst thing in their lives is change. They don't like things changing. I think the change is the most important thing and it's the only thing in life that really gives me some sense of hope. Change is good. When I'm a sinner, I want to change to be righteous. Amen? And when I'm righteous, I want to change from glory to glory. Amen? I don't want to keep on going. I want to change all the time. I don't want to stay where I am. If I'm staying where I am, I'm dead. I want to change. Who's in for change? Give me a... You know, change is usually hard sometimes. It usually hurts sometimes. Change is always difficult. But this change, this change talked about here. Oh. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, the eye twinkling is faster than a blink. It's just when the light gets caught in the corner, you see the, the, the glint of the eye. It's just that split, split second, small nanosecond. And it'll have happened. It'll like one minute you're here and the next minute it's changed. Everything is changed. It'll be one minute you're just going to pick up something and all of a sudden it's different. It's different again now. It's, it's all different now. Changed. In a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, you'll hear a da For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So what we're told here is that the dead will be raised incorruptible. So at that moment in the twinkling, there's a miracle going to take place. And God is good at miracles. He created us from the dust. That's a miracle. He breathed life into the dust. And man became a living soul. That was a miracle. He did it at the beginning. And he can do it again. You know, some people say, well, I'm never going to get cremated. Because if I get cremated, and this is why they used to burn the old saints in the Reformation. Because the Catholics believe that if you burn somebody and you burn their body, God could not change the dust and bring them back to life. That's why Catholics only get buried in the ground. They don't get cremated in the ground because it's impossible for God to bring you back from the ashes. Ah, what rot. (laughs) Jesus took the ashes and made us something great. And he can speak into a, the earth and the earth will give up its dead. The sea will get Oh, You get eaten by a shark and you're sw- 500 sharks eat you and they swim to 500 corners of the earth and they poop you out all over the ocean. Guess something? God is able to take all that poop and bring you back to life again. Hey, Amen. That's a miracle. It's a miracle. God is able to do that. You've got to think this one through. You're not talking about a small God here. You're talking about a a star-speaking God who speaks the universe into place. And if he speaks dust to spin it in the universe, he can speak life into the dust that lays in the ground. And at the first resurrection, that's exactly what he says. Live! And the dust comes together and stands up. And and all those who have died beforehand, they've come back to with the Lord, the spirits have come back. Absent from the body is present with the Lord, so their spirits are with the Lord. And the Bible tells us they've come back with the Lord now, and they are waiting up there, and he speaks. And in a twinkling of eye, their spirits get reunited with their new body. They stand up. 
granddad. Great granddad. All the ones dad that went before us. They stand up out of the dust. We see them in their prime with the spirits united standing there. We see them all. We see Peter and Paul and James and Matthew. We see them all standing there in their immortal bodies, never to die again, changed in a twinkling of an eye, gathered to be with him in the... And we who are alive and remain are changed. So we go through this mortifice of change. Boom, we're changed. And now we have a body that's like under his body, we're told. A body, flesh of blood that can walk through walls. It's amazing. It's an incredible body. It's a never dying body. Scientists still don't know why we die. They look at our bodies and they see we rejuvenate ourselves. What, every seven days or something, the whole the cell rejuvenates itself. They do not know why the mutation takes place in the DNA. It's like there's a spoken curse on the thing and the DNA is that, but it shouldn't. It should just keep on living forever. And that's how we were created, to live forever, but we sinned. And curse entered in. So this body that we get is not under the curse. This body that we get is not under sickness. This body that we get is not covered by anything. On this. this is a new body for a new spirit. And there we are with the Lord, with our new bodies. This is the first resurrection. I want to be part of that one, hey? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13, down he says, do, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died before, lest you sorrow... As others have, who have no hope. You see, sorrow about death is not something that you should mourn about. I'm, I know that you might be unhappy that you won't see their face again. That their company is not there. But it's not as if you have no hope. In a small while, in a small time, you will see them all again. You will know them and they will know you. You will be with them. In a small time. But if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring those with him who sleep in Jesus. For this I say to you by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or those who have already died beforehand. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead... In Christ will rise first. And why does he have to rise first? Because they've got an extra six feet to come. <laughs> then we who are alive and remain will be caught to, up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with him, the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. This is the first resurrection. It would be great if that's all it was, hey. But we know that even in this congregation, there are some in this congregation who are not ready for the first resurrection. That Jesus himself said, you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say. He says, when I ask you to do something, you keep on turning away from me, turning away from me. He says, I'm standing on the outside of the door knocking. And he's asking you, to, so even in the sky, just because you're sitting here doesn't mean that you're going to be taken up in the first resurrection. 
This is for those who believe in him. Who've set their faith and their hope in him. If it happens and we're sitting in church and I'm still standing at the front here when you've just appeared, that will be a problem. If it happens when we're in church and I disappear in front of you and half a dozen other people disappear in front of you, the rest of you are sitting looking at you, there's a problem here. And we will talk about that another time. The second resurrection. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This is the second resurrection, not the first. The sea gave back the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It goes on to say, which burns before the throne of God day and night. What's happening here? This has taken place. The resurrection has taken place. The, the beamer seed of Christ, it's all over. So this doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it does, but it's, it's all happened. We have death in Hades, which is the grave. Remember, is it still there? The rich man is still there suffering. Everybody else who's died without God is still there in pain suffering. The great white throne, everybody gets a new body. Boop. Death gives it up. Small and great, boy and girl, all stand before God. The great white throne. All standing there to give an account about what they did. Right there is Frank Sinatra. He's going to impress God with his song. I did it my way. And God's going to say, I'm not impressed. <laughs> Everybody who's dead and gone before is going to be given a new body. This is the second resurrection. Everybody, this is when it's all finished. After the thousand-year reign of Christ, after the big thing that happens at Armageddon, it's all wrapped up. This is the big wrap-up now. When, when history, as we know it in the world, as the Bible has told us in the world, is going to be wound up. This is what happens this. This is the great white throne. You don't want to be around for this one, folks. The beast and the prophet and all the wickedness of this world are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. You see things happening in the Middle East now. You see things happening with global, the G20 here, the global nations all getting together. The United Nations coming together. The, the, the um, united religion, which is the combination of all religions, which denies gods of all faiths and, and sets its own God up over the whole thing, which has at the core of this religion all the basic tenets of the Ten Commandments essentially there because everybody agrees with those except for who God is. And the devil, the Antichrist, will reign over the whole lot and we'll have a worldwide religion and everybody better believe in this, otherwise you'll get taken out. 
I mean, that's what the Bible teaches. Well, we see it happening. You say, well, this is just fairy tale stuff, Mark. You're telling us stories. I want to tell you something. Keep reading the newspaper because it's happening in the newspaper just as it's happened in Scripture. The Scripture has told you before Jesus came, it prophesied about Jesus coming. And if somebody were to come and fulfill all the prophecies of Jesus, it was 10 to the power of 157, which is absolutely ma- insane to think about that. It's, in, it's important. Jesus is the one who was prophesied for. Jesus came telling us exactly what was going to happen next. He said, this is what's going to happen next. This is what's going to happen. You read Matthew chapter 24. You read about what's going to happen next. You read Daniel. You read Ezekiel. You read about what's going to happen. He says, John, the apostle, sits down and says, I saw heaven open and I saw. And he starts talking about the things in Revelation that are going to take place. Friends, if it all took place to bring Jesus here and Jesus died for our sins, and if Jesus says this is what's going to happen next, I'd believe him. I'd believe him. I'd believe him. I see, we, you know, when Bob Hawke was prime minister in this country, he started talking about a new world order. A new world order. We never heard that language before. And then the Russians joined up with the, they pulled down the walls and all the frictions and fractions that were dividing the whole world sort of come undone. And then we talked about United Nations as being the court that's above every other court of the land. And every other country sold its sovereignty to the United Nations through the monetary fund, international monetary fund. You need money? Here, take some money. Give us your sovereignty now. We'll rule you now. What is this? What is this conspiracy that is taking place in the governments of our land? What is this? It's nothing. It's nothing. Don't worry about it. It's just the fulfillment of Scripture. It's happening just as they said it would happen. There's going to be a resurrection for the living and a resurrection for the dead. There will be two resurrections for the believers and one for the unbelievers. If you're at this right great white throne and you're standing before God and those books are opened up before you and they're looking for your name... This is the book of life. And if you're standing there and it's the great white throne, you say, oh, the great white throne, you know they're not going to find your name in this book because you'll have already, if your name was in the book of life, you'd already gone through the beam of seat of Christ. You would already be with Jesus. This one is, kiss a goodbye, it's coming. If you're standing there, I would love to scare you into heaven. Seriously love to scare you so much about this horrible place. If you go through the scripture and read about the place where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched, where it's so horrible, people groan and, and cry out day and night for release. If you, if you believe that's a place, if you believe it's real, you wouldn't want to go there. The fear of that would just get into you. Jesus says, don't fear him who can you know, hurt you in the physical. Fear him who can throw you headlong into hell. Fear him rather. And then Jesus talks about it's better to go to heaven with one eye than it is to go with two eyes. If your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. He says, take drastic steps to deal with sin so you don't go down. If your hand is sinning, cut it off. He's not telling you to go and cut somebody and maim somebody like the Islamists are doing. No, he's saying deal with sin because sin will take you down. Sin sends you to hell. God doesn't send you to hell. God forgives you of your sins and cleanses you of your sins and sets you free so you don't have to sin anymore. But if you keep on living in your sin, your sin will send you to hell because the judgment of God will come on you. It is not okay 
to sin as a believer. I know that we do, and God is gracious, and if we forgive us, if we confess our sin, He is gracious to forgive us our sins. But He wants us to grow up and to walk in righteousness and to walk with the Spirit. This place is not a good place. The Bible tells us in Revelations that the the smoke, let's say oh, it's a place without God. I, I'm, it's not a, where can I go and not be found by your spirit? Can I go to the highest mountain and you are not there? Can I go to the depths of the sea and you are not there? Where can I hide from you, God? Where can you go where the omnipresent God is not? You can't even go to hell where the omni God is not. He is there in his wrath, in his unadulterated wrath. The wrath of God is visited upon. It stands the the gates of hell stand in the in the heaven and they spew out the foam and the smoke. Before the throne, day and night, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, it says. Not a nice picture. You don't want to be there. Outside of what you're thinking, Jesus said it. Jesus pointed it. The Word teaches it. We can dismiss it and say, oh, I can't even imagine that that would be right. And we can change our mind with regard to it. But when you die and the judgment comes, it doesn't matter what you believe now. If that's the reality, it's going to happen to you. Imagine yourself standing before God and saying, look, all my life I just believed this was a myth. All my life I was told by my little group that the worst I would get is snuffed out into non-existence. I lived my life believing I could sin and at death I would be snuffed out into non-existence. God says, welcome to reality. Welcome to reality. You can believe a lie when you're dead, but when you stand before the truth, it will become real, the truth. And it doesn't matter what you believe when you're alive. The truth is not changed by your deception while you're alive. The truth will reveal itself to you in the end. Either you're aware of it or you're not. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 21 verse 8, it says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's described as the second death. Go through this again. This the cowardly. Not having enough boldness to talk about Jesus to people is cowardly. When you're asked, are you a Christian? And you're going to get a bit of flack for it? You say, oh, no, 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 no. You deny him? That's cowardly. You, you are actually defining where you're going if you are cowardly. Unbelieving. I don't believe Jesus will help me. I can't, I can't believe in a God like that. Abominable, murderous, sexual immoral. I can do this. You know, everybody in our life and our society now, 85% of everybody gets married, lives cohabiting with the person before they get married. They, before they get married, they sleep with the person and have sex with the person because they think it's okay. That's called sexual immorality. Jesus can forgive you from doing that. But the Bible says 
you leave your husband, your mother and your father and you cleave to your wife and you become one flesh and that's marriage. That's when it takes place. That's the marriage. Uh, it's upside down in our world now because our world actually says what you do is you, you, you live together, you sleep together, you possibly have children together before you even think about marriage. Well, marriage is something that we consolidate a relationship together rather than we commence a relationship together. That's our society. Well, I'll tell you something, friends. That's called sexually immoral living. That's what it's called, sexually immoral living. And those who live that way have chosen their place. Idolaters and sorcerers. You like reading tarot cards? Do you like, uh, do you like reading your horoscope? You think there's some life in your horoscope? You look at the magazine and go for your, what, what star sign are you? I'm an Aries. Okay, let me see. Oh, Aries. Today you are going to meet a stranger. Put money in your pocket because you'll need it. Come to life for you. That's called sorcery. It, 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 it branches from talking to demons, playing Yuji boards, you know, doing all kinds of manner of evil things like that, demonic worship, to simple things like reading horoscopes. It's all part of that brand. Liars. Liars. Not truth tellers. People who find it convenient to tell lies rather than to speak the truth. Was that you who did that? No. Somebody else did it. Refuse to take responsibility for what you've done because it's easier to tell a lie and blame someone else. Liars, people who choose to twist and extort the truth because it makes them look good or feel good. Liars, people who escape because they fear what truth-telling is about. It's even in the Philippine culture, it's part of their axioms. The little white lie. It's like, the little white lie, as though there is white lies and black lies. Oh, the little white lie says when I, when I go to, to Maria's uh, place, she says, would you like something to eat? And I said, no, 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 I've already eaten. That's called a little, it's cultural. It's a cultural thing. It says, please do not trouble me. She must ask me if I want something to eat, but I know she hasn't got food, so I must tell a lie and say, I have already eaten. So she says, okay, and she doesn't offer it again. But the little game is called a little white lie in your culture, isn't that right? Yes, it is. It's a cultural thing. So sometimes in our culture, the culture which is not of God, we tell lies because it's okay to tell lies in our culture. We think culturally that's what we do. It's the normal thing to do in our culture. Be careful. All liars have their place in the fire that burns forever. There's another way to say it. Just, don't, just say, no, it's okay. You don't have to feed me. You didn't tell a lie. Or go to her place fasting and say, no, I can't eat. I am fasting. It's not a lie. There are plenty of ways to get around and tell the truth without telling a lie. There, I, I can't help it. I have to tell a lie. Be careful because you're signing your ticket to an eternal destination when you do that. Now, I would love to 
Is that still on? Yep. I'd love to, to uh, make this all go away. In fact, this is probably one of the horriblest uh, sermons you could ever preach about hell. And I'm, I'm, I'm linking hell in here too with this one because we want to talk about hell and talk about the resurrection. It's all sort of closely mixed together. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel tells us about it. And Matthew chapter 25 verse 46 tells us about it. And, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. These, these are, are things that we should listen to. The writer of the Hebrews says, that, And it, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. And the Buddhist and the Hinduist will tell you, we have to aspire to be perfect. In Hindu faith and in the Buddhist faith, the ideal is to get to this place of perfection. It is impossible for you to imagine that you can reach this place of perfection in one lifetime. Because you can't mix, fix up all the bad stuff that's gone in your karma and your past life and the people, your fathers. And, you can't fix it all up. It's too bad. So you have to have many lives. This is reincarnation. Many lives to get to the place where you are now perfect. I sat in the dentist's chair and the dentist was, who was fixing my teeth, was, he's a Hindu and he was talking to his assistant who was a Filipino girl, who was a Christian Filipino girl, and he was telling her about how they believe in reincarnation because how many times they have to go round the hill before they can get perfect. Because it's all about your work and how you can work it out so you can get it, so you, when you stand before God who will judge, you will be right before him. So they have created this idea that you can go around as many times as you like. But the Bible tells us you get one shot at this. And it's not by what you do. It's not by your works. It's not by how good you are. It's how good Jesus was. And that's the one that gives you the access to the... He, you don't get to heaven because you got it worked out. Finally, John. You don't get to heaven because somehow you, you got that secret information, John, and it all came together for you, you know. No, you get to get to heaven because Jesus died for your sins and he was punished for your sins and you get a free ticket to glory not because of what you did but because of what he did. That's just outrageous grace. Grace, it's outrageous. It's, what do you do? I've changed. You follow, lead, lead me, Lord, I'll follow you. Wherever you lead me, I'll do. Why? Because I am so grateful for the new life you have given me. For salvation. That I can't deserve and I can't earn. It's just been given to me. Why don't we lift our heads and why do we praise in the morning? Why do we lift our hands and say, Jesus, we love you. We just thank you. You know, we want to thank you. We go around all work. We're trying to work it out as though we're going to earn our salvation. I want to tell you something. Stop trying to work it out. Just follow him, obey him, but don't try and work anything out. He's worked it all out for you. You get caught up on the first resurrection. There's no problems. You just go to be with him, to be with him forever. These poor... Poor Buddhist people who, who go thinking that they're going to die and then come back maybe a little bit better as another person, a little bit better later on. And the Bible says it's given to you once to die and then you're taken to the judgment seat. What judgment seat? Either the great white throne or the beamer seat of Christ. You get two choices. You get one. Where are you going to go? You get two resurrections. Which one do you want to be part of? 
Two destinations. And you are in control of that. Whosoever, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Most assuredly, it says in John chapter 8, verse 51, most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, read it with me, he will never see death. Oh. Thank you, Jesus. What's keeping his word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Oh, how does a young man keep his way clean? By keeping it according to his word. The word of God. And you, you know, John, when you read the word of God, you feel the life of God start to stir within you. It brims within you. As you read the word of God, you say, keep it now. I, 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 I talked to a young lass. She was, I led to the Lord and she's reading. And she's, she says, she's reading it. She says, and I feel this. Like, and and Ahmed says, it's like magic. This feeling is like magic. It's so exciting inside. The feeling of God breathing life into you through the word. Keep the word. Live in the word. And the Bible says you will never see death. You know, some of you take your Bible. I picked up a Bible. It's a Schofield Bible. It's an old, old Bible. I'm closing now. This is my last thing. I like old things. So it came in the, in the van, in the Bible box in the van. I picked it out. I thought, man, that's a, that's a leather cover. I'm a connoisseur of fine Bibles. It's a King James Version, but that's okay. It's a Schofield Version. I've never seen one of those before. And I looked at it, and it has still got the gold leafing on it so when i open the pages they're still stuck close together i open it up and it's pristine beautiful yes the leather is worn around the edges and i took off the plastic around it and i and i rubbed black nugget into the leather and gave it a bit of a polish so that it was smoother and the binding has come off there but i open it up and then i got to the second page and there in old-fashioned handwriting dr and I can't even remember his name, gave it to Mr. Lee Roy Cross in 1931. And I thought, wow. And so I read, looked up Dr. the guy who gave it to him and looked up Lee Roy Cross, and it was from this little church, and it's in New Jersey. And it's a New Jersey little church. And I read all about the town and about, about the time, 1931, where there was a real outpouring of a move there. And this little pastor, who was a doctor in theology, had given this Bible to Leroy Cross. Here in Australia, 2014, I picked this Bible up. It's worn on the cover, but not a page has been opened. I think this is a vital and beautiful find. I'm going to find somebody scribbles through it. I'm going to find marks in it where somebody has been, because they have been devouring the Word of God, it has been given by a doctor of theology to a man to live his life. And he says, 
They've given a scripture reference at the top of it, which is encouraged. Study the word of God and show yourself approved. A watchman that need not be rightly dividing with. But Leroy Cross never opened the pages of this Bible. Why? Because the gold was still stuck together on the pages. And I thought, that was his choice. That was his choice. You make the same choice every day with this precious word. You love it so much, you want to hang on to it. It becomes so precious to you. You can't go a minute without turning its pages and looking and reading and feeling the magic of his spirit speaking to you, invigorating you and nourishing you and refreshing you. Or you can let it sit on the side of your bed where it collects dust only to ever be moved by the woman who takes the dust off your bed. Never marked, never worn out, no pages ripped and torn because you've been there so many times, no oil prints on it or food drops on it, no smudges where you've cried and something's been so powerful you it's Dropped, your tears have dropped onto some pen marking and it's smudged your Bible and you've left a mark there. No little pictures on the side where you've tried to draw something that you've seen. No marks that tell you to go to another place and find another scripture. Nothing but just plain white pages with plain words inside of them. He who keeps my word will never see death. Friends, you need to have a good look at the resurrection that's on its way. I don't know when it's coming. I hope it's this afternoon. I can't tell you when it's going to come, but I tell you one thing, it will come. And you better be ready. Because if we all go and you still remain, you've got some heavy duty stuff to go through. Let's all stand. Let's bow your heads and close your eyes. Revelation chapter 3.20 says, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. He who opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and him with me. And so oftentimes when we come to church, I mean, we, we, we come, we sit, and we're like spectators who, who, who don't involve ourselves with what's going on. And, and Jesus is saying, look, I'm here to speak to you. The prophetic words that came out today was, come to me. Come and take from me. Come and take from my wisdom and take my wisdom upon yourself. It was a, a request for you to exchange where you are to what he wants to give you, to change your thoughts to his thoughts, to enter into a place to find new hope and new vigor and new life with Jesus. He's the source. He's standing today. He's standing here today saying, I am calling to you. I do not want you to face the second death. I came and died for you to make a way for you to, to go in the first resurrection. Friends, I'm calling you now by the Spirit of God. Move toward him. Open your door of your heart to him 
and let them come in. Move toward them. As surely as I'm standing here today, you will stand before God one day. And you will have to give an account for the very message that I've spoken today because you will have heard it. And you will have heard it and you will have said, I accept it or I reject it. And what you do with this message will determine your outcome. Friends, if you just feel like, you know, you want to rededicate your life to the Lord, I want you to raise your hand and say, look, I, you know, I don't want to be left behind. I, 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 I want God's love to so, I want to love God so much that I don't have any fear about death. I don't have any fear about punishment. I don't want to have any fear about anything. I just want to, I want to follow you, Jesus, all my life. You just raise your hand if you just want to rededicate your life to Jesus. Father, you see those who've just responded to you now, Lord, and I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, so fill them with a desire for you, that they would just so hunger and thirst after righteousness, Father. Lord, that they'd be ready for you, that we'd be looking, waiting for you, that we'd be lifting our eyes to the clouds every day and saying, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, that we'd be expectant of you, Father, that we'd be living our lives in the light of eternity. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.